Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, we're taping this week's episode on Tuesday morning. Uh, I sit here in Manhattan, as does Donald Trump. Uh, And we're expecting, as we're taping, we're expecting Michael Cohen to be testifying. So unfortunately, we do not have a Michael Cohen update for you. Uh, That's something that we'll have to do next week on next week's episode. But uh, that uh, that is on the radar. And it sort of makes sense because this whole trial, this civil trial uh, brought by the New York AG uh, over certain kinds of business fraud has been especially kind of a circus in the courtroom compared to some of these other proceedings that we've been following and and really clearly no love lost between the attorneys on both sides in this case. No, not surprisingly. It's been bitter and contentious from the very beginning. I'm sure that having Trump as a client amps that up because his expectations are that you're going to throw elbows and that type of thing. This past week that erupted in an incident where Trump lawyer Chris Kyes got into a little discussion with uh, the judge's law clerk and with the lead uh, deputy AG, generally characterized afterwards as him being rude and sexist to uh, both of them. He got chastised by the judge. And that's just sort of an own goal, Josh. You know, if you're a middle to late middle-aged dude and you're going to be rude and arguably sexist to female attorneys or to clerks in the courtroom, you know, that's not going to turn out well for you, nor should it. But it's a tricky thing because often clients expect you to act like an ass. They want you to be aggressive and uh, not give an inch and, and take it to these people. But there's just there's just no good strategy that involves being rude to the judge's law clerk and rarely a good strategy that involves being gratuitously snippy and rude to opposing counsel. Is this a little bit surprising in that, I mean, Chris Kyes, we were initially introduced to uh, when there were the proceedings down in Florida related to Mar-a-Lago, and Donald Trump brought him on with a $3 million fee deposit. And the idea at the time was now Donald Trump has a serious Florida criminal lawyer in Chris Kyes, and it was supposed to be an upgrade from the other personnel he had. And then there was this weirdness some months preceding from that, where it seemed like Chris Kyes was on the outs within Trump's legal operation. They paid him this huge fee deposit. His name wasn't showing up on certain filings. It wasn't clear exactly what work he was doing. And the question was, why are they not relying on this real lawyer that they hired? Now you have Chris Kyes in court in New York behaving in this way that that, you're describing as as self-defeating, not making any sort of strategic sense. Is it surprising from someone who is supposed to be the good lawyer? Yes and no. I mean, Chris Kyes is smart. He's not dumb. That distinguishes him from um, some Trump lawyers. Alina Haba. Yes, he's uh, he knows what he's doing. He's a very experienced lawyer, but nobody's perfect in one particular way that yeah, approximately 60-ish white dudes tend to be imperfect is uh, to be sort of rude and condescending to uh, court staff sometimes. It's just a generational thing, and some of them never learned better, and uh, it doesn't turn out well for them. Another problem that came up in court in New York had to do with that Truth Social post, also about the judge's law clerk, getting quite a lot more attention than you normally should have on, on a law clerk in a, uh, in a in a trial. 
Trump had attacked her, called her Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. Judge Engeron was furious about this, imposed a gag order saying that the parties, but really meaning Trump, uh, are not allowed to make attacks on the court staff, ordered him to take the post down. And they did take it down from Truth Social. They didn't take it down. Apparently, it got reposted on the Trump campaign website, and that version was left up. Uh, which people didn't notice for a couple of weeks. And then finally, someone noticed this, and the judge was very angry about it and about the the defiance of his order, uh, and ultimately sanctioned Trump $5,000 for having failed to take that down. Now, the, the Trump team said this was inadvertent. They, like, they forgot or didn't realize that it had been reposted there. And I guess, I mean, that's probably true. I don't know what reason they would have had to leave up the like little notice campaign site version in defiance of the order, other than that they screwed up. Um, but so what do you what do you make of the, the, the how angry the judge was about this and, and the fact that he chose to impose this sanction? Yeah, I think it's pretty clearly inadvertent. Uh, and it's just a failure of due diligence when when a judge orders you to do something, you've got to be a little more thorough making sure that you've done it. But this is a typical thing where, you know, they don't maybe the lawyers, maybe Trump doesn't know that stuff is automatically getting sucked up from true social and repurposed someplace else. That's just a matter of the lawyer should have thought to tell the IT people, I want you to look for everything everywhere that this could be and take it down. I think the judge was largely using this as an opportunity to indicate that he means business. A lot of people are sort of sneering at the $5,000 sanction. It's nothing to Trump. But the fact is, it's unusual to get sanctioned like that in court. So it is kind of a big thing. It's an indication that the judge is taking it very seriously. And the next step starts getting a lot more dramatic. And the judge more or less threatened that the next step could be something like jail time or a much bigger fine. So I think the judge is probably smart enough to know that this was a failure of diligence and not something intentional. But he wanted to make a point here uh, that he's not going to put up with this and that they're going to have to take it seriously because he will. And then uh, on Tuesday morning, as they were going into court, the latest thing they were arguing over was COVID. Apparently, several members of the attorney general's legal team tested positive for COVID, also a member of the, the Trump team. And Chris Kyes is basically saying, you have the leading candidate for president here in this courtroom today. I don't think that we should expose him to COVID. Let's delay the proceedings. You had Alina Habba saying, after, after the judge refused to cancel court for the day, you then had Alina Habba saying that she didn't want to have to use the same microphone as the AG's team. I I mean, first of all, why are they taking all these COVID tests? Do you like do you have to test for COVID to get into court these days? Uh, No, I'm not aware of any courts where you have to do that. I do think that the uh, Trump team is engaging in some gratuitous theater here, as is what they tend to do and seeing what they can make of it. Uh, They're already a very hostile forum. This judge is not a fan of them. And I think they're just trying to, uh, you know, get out the messaging. And and if things go wrong, they can later say, you know, he even made us stay in this sick courtroom with all these sick people. (laughs) Let's look down to Washington, D.C., Judge Tanya Chutkin. She imposed that gag order that we talked about last week on Donald Trump, a a significantly broader gag order than the one that Judge Engeron imposed relating only to his staff. Uh, And she said that there were certain kinds of of people, witnesses, members of the prosecution team about whom Trump was not allowed to make attacks. And then she was going to issue a written order after we recorded. We did get that written order. And the written order is weirdly a little vague. It says that he can't make statements targeting those people. And it's not super clear exactly what targeting means. Uh, Unsurprisingly, the Trump team uh, filed a notice of appeal 
And Judge Shutkin then stayed her own order pending that appeal. So I guess, first of all, this, this gag order is not actually in effect right now. But I assume that as they, you know, as they get up to the appeals court, they're going to have to figure out what it means. And it's going to be a problem that it's not really clear what it means, right? It is a problem. What she actually did, Josh, was she stayed it temporarily pending full briefing on whether she should stay it for longer. So she wanted the parties to file their briefs arguing whether or not it should be stayed longer. So now it's just stayed for a few days. Yeah, I, I have to say, though, I'm a fan of Judge Chutkin because she seems no nonsense and very prepared and thorough. I am not a fan of this order, nor really, I think, is anybody. It handles the First Amendment issues in a somewhat breezy way. It doesn't really engage what I think are the most important authorities on the issue, really having to do with gagging parties and, and their attorneys. The, the cases are really focused on protecting the defendant, the ones that she chooses. And like you say, the standard she puts out there, she says that uh, they're all prohibited from making public statements that target the special counsel, defense counsel or staff, the court staff. Um, but I, I don't know what target means either. So I think that's the last place you want vagueness uh, because, you know, vagueness in, in a gag order or other speech restriction is going to be looked at particularly dimly. So I, I'm a little surprised and somewhat disappointed in this. And I'm not alone in that. A lot of commentators who are no fans of Trump have basically said they think it's an unconstitutional order. So, you know, Erwin Chemerinsky, who's one of the more prominent and, and omnipresent law professors uh, in the United States, wrote a thing in the LA Times about how it's insufficient and uh, unconstitutional. And he's no fan of Trump. Uh, he's, he's quite liberal. Uh, so I don't know if this survives on the Court of Appeals in its current form, because I think the easy way out for the Court of Appeal is to say, look, there are a lot of complicated issues here, but we have no idea what target means. You need to fix this and send it back down. It's also a little breezy in the way it deals with Mike Pence, because it, you know, one of the groups of people that it says you're not allowed to target are reasonably foreseeable witnesses or the substance of their testimony. Pence is a reasonably foreseeable witness. He's also putatively one of Donald Trump's uh, rivals for the Republican nomination for president. And she says in here that uh, the, the order does not apply to statements criticizing the campaign platforms or policies of defendants' current political rivals, such as former Vice President Pence. But you can imagine criticisms that a candidate makes on a campaign trail of another candidate that are not of the campaign platform or policy of an opponent. I mean, it seems like you couldn't say, I don't think Mike Pence is a strong leader because that's not about his policies or, or his campaign platform. Right. And curiously, th this is less specific than what she said verbally in court, where she made it clear there that what she was talking about was attacking him over the anticipated substance of his testimony or about his participation in events that made up the case. So that was, I mean, that's more reasonable, that's more specific. This, like you say, there's a vast amount of stuff. This could be, I'm not sure you can attack his character, right. uh, which, I mean, how do you run a campaign if you can't attack the other side's character? <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, that's just one more way. I, I, I'm puzzled, uh, Josh. I'm, I'm puzzled that a normally careful judge is being this not careful in the written order, which is really your opportunity to fix any problems or vagueness in your verbal order and, uh, you know, dot all the I's, cross all the T's. 
After Judge Chutkin issued this order as expected, John Loro, Trump's attorney, filed a notice of appeal in Judge Chutkin's court. And then there was a letter issued from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, that is the appellate court that will oversee this, telling John Loro that he needs to apply for admission to the bar of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. John Loro is an attorney in New York with offices in New York and Florida, um, so I guess he doesn't practice in Washington, D.C. very much. He's not a member of that appellate bar. This letter came out. Darren Samuelson wrote it up for The Messenger. And a lot of sort of resistance figures were, were waving this letter around like, ha ha, he didn't even realize that he had to be a member of the court. Trump doesn't have a real lawyer who's a real member of the, of the court. They already screwed this up. And it even got picked up by some people who, you know, should be pretty sophisticated about practice in these courts. People like Andrew Weissman, who helped run the Mueller investigation, uh, and uh, George Conway, uh, of Kellyanne Conway fame. And what I gather is that this letter was fairly routine and also like he hadn't even tried to appear in the court yet or file anything in the court. So it's not it's not even like he failed to file paperwork on time that he had to clear up. This is just something that happens when you show up in a new court. Yeah, I, I thought this was kind of bullshit to begin with, uh, but it's even worse than I initially thought. You pointed me to uh, Sean Murata uh, reporting that basically this happened just because the lawyer filed the notice of appeal in the trial court. And then the court of appeal automatically just said, oh, hey, you're not a member of us. You're going to need uh, someone admitted here. So he didn't even file something in the court of appeal without being admitted there, which is what I initially thought had happened based on the reporting. So this is kind of the, the court of appeal being proactive. Trump did immediately have someone who was a member of the D.C. Circuit uh, file something in that court. It's it's a huge non-issue. And and frankly, even if he had filed something in the D.C. circuit without being a member there, that would be mildly dumb and embarrassing. But it, the, the truth is it's routine to seek and get almost immediately admission to a court like that when you're an established practitioner. It's, it's kind of a, a ministerial task and, and not anything that demonstrates that, uh, you know, he's done something seriously wrong. Yeah, I just I, I maybe it annoys me more than it should. I just I find the the enthusiasm that people have to pick up any document that like there's an interpretation of where they can be like, oh, ha ha. Trump's lawyer is such an idiot without actually bothering to investigate whether the thing that was done was idiotic. There's a tremendous appetite for that sort of content and which is remarkable because there's a fair amount of supply of that content, too. You don't need to make up new fake examples of Trump's attorneys being dumb. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of great stuff and you've got Trump doing things uh, himself while this is going on. So, yeah, I agree. There's this uh, thirst for, you know, Trump content that sometimes leads people to dumb assumptions. Let's look at what's happening in Georgia. Some developments that I think are surprising to us, right? There have been three new guilty pleas in the massive RICO case brought by D.A. Fonnie Willis, two of them of people who were supposed to go to trial this week, Ken Chesabro and Sidney Powell, the so-called cheese and crackers trial, not actually going to happen. Both cheese and crackers pled out. So on Tuesday morning, did Jenna Ellis, uh, another one of Donald Trump's sometime attorneys, and all three of them have plea deals. All three of these deals involve no jail time. Right. And Jenna Ellis did uh, plead out just moments before we taped this show. A nice little amuse-bouche for the uh, our discussion. Uh, yeah, they, they all uh, pled very lenient deals, no jail time, five years probation, 
100 hours of community service, a written apology, which let me just say, I look forward to reading, uh, <laughs> and cooperation, including testimony. So these are notably lenient results for people who have been charged in a goddamn RICO case, okay? Mm -hmm. In a federal case, I would be fairly stunned at anyone charged in a big case like this getting off this easy. So in federal cases, if it gets to the point where you're indicted, you're going to pay a penalty, uh, even if you're the first one in the door cooperating. The state, there's more flexibility, more ability to give someone like this a deal that's that's close to a walk uh, where there's no jail time. But my feeling is it's still pretty notably lenient on all of them. But it is definitely significant in terms of the case against Trump and the case against other figures in this case like Giuliani. There's been a lot of speculation. Why would Fonnie Willis hand out deals like this. And I think the best answers are, as to the cheese and crackers trial, she probably didn't want an early trial where she was going to have to show her hand, put on all her evidence, expose all her witnesses to cross-examination, that type of thing. So that's a factor. Certainly having these people as cooperators is a factor. I mean, I wouldn't want either Ken Chesbrough or Sidney Powell is a witness. They're crazy, but they can give you an inside scoop. They might have documents you don't have. And there's just a weight to more and more of them cooperating that's going to give it a sort of credibility all its own. And now with Jenna Ellis, uh, that's even more so. Now you've got two, three lawyers who were involved in this, uh, ready to talk about what the intent was. So uh, it, it is pretty significant, Josh. But so I'm I find the Ellis plea more surprising than the others for, for a reason that you get at there. I mean, the first person who pled out was Scott Hall, this bail bondsman who was involved in the efforts to breach the Coffee County voting machines. And there it's basically like, who the hell is Scott Hall? He's a really small fish and sort of makes sense as someone who might get off with an easy deal. He's not really a key target here. Then you have uh, Chesbro and Powell, who, for as you described, the DA had no choice but to take them to trial this week because of their right under Georgia law to insist upon a speedy trial, which they did. And she may have had tactical reasons not wanting to go to trial yet. But Ellis, why did Ellis need to be pled out now? If you're going to uh, if you're going to give a, a deal on substantially similar terms to the one that Sidney Powell got to someone who did not have you over the barrel of, of having to go to trial next week, it seems like if, if she can't hold out for more there, it's an indication that they never really had much of an intention to seriously prosecute many of the 19 people who they indicted. Right. Or they think her cooperation is so valuable that it's worth a killer deal like this. Yeah, I mean state prosecutors are more likely than federal prosecutors to talk big in the indictment and then settle small. Okay, that's more of a thing there. Uh, there, there are all sorts of um, federal rules and procedures in federal practice that say you've got to make them plead to the top count, the most important count. Uh, you've got to do all these other things. You can't like give away the candy store. The state has a lot more flexibility. So if Ellis is getting this deal, even though her, her trial is not looming, I infer from that either that, like you say, they never really intended to go for the big punishments for most of these people, that a lot of it is theater. Um, and also uh, that she may have some real cooperation 
uh, to offer something they think is seriously valuable and getting some of these other people. I note that, uh, Josh, she uh, gave a statement in court basically blaming other people, saying mm-hmm. she didn't do her due diligence. She relied on other people. But Rudy but, Giuliani. Yeah. One. Hang on there, Jenna, though. OK, so aiding and abetting a crime, that crime uh, requires the government to prove that you had specific intent to assist somebody else in committing or concealing a crime. It's not something you do accidentally. Okay, it's not like she says a failure of due diligence. If she's pleading to that, she's admitting that she deliberately intended to uh, help someone commit a crime. So, you know, we should take her sort of minimization with uh, a grain of salt there. But there's something that I find odd about that then, which is that Ellis's plea, like the other three pleas, uh, the state has agreed uh, with the defense that they will stipulate that these were not crimes of moral turpitude. And I guess that's, you know, except for except for the bail bondsman, these people are attorneys. They would like to retain their law licenses. But I mean, in layman's terms, certainly these sound like crimes of moral turpitude that, that she, you know, willfully caused false statements to be made to the Georgia legislature in an effort to deprive the civil rights of the voters to falsify the outcome of an election. Sure. Josh, crime of moral turpitude is kind of a term of art, uh, like the term aggravated felony. Okay, you get these terms that are used in a lot of different contexts. They often have different definitions in different contexts. You know, it might mean one thing for immigration. Are you automatically deported if you've been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude or an aggravated felony? Or, you know, are you going to lose your law license if you're convicted of that rather than something else? So the definition can be flexible depending on the context. Um, The stipulation that it's not a crime of moral turpitude generally will not bind the bar authorities of whatever state that's looking at this. But it's kind of like preserving your best argument. Um, and and often, you know, a state's definition of crimes is vague enough that there might be some flexibility about whether or not it's a crime of moral turpitude. Usually, um, usually fraud or false statement related crimes are crimes of moral turpitude under most definitions. And that would seem to be aiding and abetting false statements would seem to be under normal definitions a crime of moral turpitude. But I think they're just trying to save their law licenses here and preserve the best arguments they have for the eventual bar proceedings. Yeah, but it is notably lenient for the government to be stipulating to that. I, I think it's more or less a gesture that that the DA doesn't give a shit and they think they're not going to be successful in the uh, in state bar proceedings either way. It doesn't matter what they stipulate. One of the things we've talked a lot about regarding this case is its unwieldy nature, the huge number of defendants. There's another RICO case in Georgia right now where, you know, it's been like 10 months of jury selection uh, because it's so hard to seat a jury for a trial this long and complex. Is D.A. Willis's case getting wieldier by the day here? Obviously, the number of defendants is shrinking. Uh, She's also picking up these cooperators, presumably to at least some extent strengthen the case that she can present, because instead of being additional defendants, these are people who will provide additional testimony. Is this starting to look more like a logistically feasible approach to prosecuting Donald Trump and some of his most prominent associates like Rudy Giuliani? Marginally? I mean, now you're talking about instead of a 19 car pileup, you've got a 15 car pileup. It's still not easy to get yourself out of. But I assume there's going to be more plea deals. Yeah, there probably will be. And I think the the closer they get 
to a situation where they can carve out just a few key trials, you know, hopefully with maybe one of them with just Trump. That would be the the easiest way to run that particular circus. Yeah, but but they're not there yet. I think they really need to for any given trial, if you've got more than, say, three or four people, uh, I think it becomes almost impossibly unwieldy the way we've seen in other RICO prosecutions. And and that's part of the pressure on these people is that they know that if they go to trial in a multi-defendant case, they're in trial for a year and no one can afford that on any level. I have one more question about these defendants who are pleading out. They they have to testify. That's one of the uh, one of the terms of their plea agreements, and this settles their legal liability in Georgia. But there's also the federal government and the the choice that Jack Smith has made, where he indicted only Donald Trump related to these January six and and election theft efforts, kept his case simpler. But he could, in theory, bring additional indictments against other conspirators in the future. If they give testimony in court in Georgia, that will be admissible against them in federal court, right? Right, because the uh, Georgia does not have the power to give immunity from federal prosecution. So generally, when you're a cooperator, the sovereign you're cooperating with agrees not to use your testimony against you, uh, so long as you don't lie and you continue to cooperate. But you can't guarantee that any other sovereign won't use that testimony. Um, it becomes more complicated if someone is compelled to testify over their objections and resistance. But in general, uh, yeah, these people are putting themselves at risk that their testimony can be used against them by the feds. Now, that said, generally, the feds like people cooperating in state prosecutions and are not going to be inclined to bigfoot it by coming in and doing that because they know that would sort of derail the whole system, deter people from cooperating, and so forth. So I, th- I think they would be inclined against using that cooperation. Do you think that'll be true even if some of these plea deals go to more prominent figures? I mean, I, I sort of agree that the feds are probably not that interested in prosecuting Jenna Ellis. I mean, I guess I, I don't. we don't know who else might plead out in this case. But at some point, you reach people who really do look like significant wrongdoers who you might want to prosecute for reasons of deterrence. Well, at that point, you might see people reaching concurrent deals with the feds that could be as beneficial as saying, we agree that if you cooperate with the state, we won't use your testimony against you, all the way to you know reaching a separate plea deal uh, hmm. with the feds. But yes, definitely, once you become a Rudy Giuliani, and I would say a Sidney Powell, then you're a person who the feds probably have significant interest in. You're at least a subject, likely a target. Uh, So that's certainly something they have to consider. I also want to talk about one of the January 6th cases, because there was an interesting appeal about it that could have implications for Donald Trump himself. Uh, And this had to do with Thomas Robertson, who was convicted of a number of charges for his participation in the Capitol riot. And one of them, as with many of the defendants in those cases, he was charged with and convicted of uh, obstructing an official proceeding. And then there was this question about what it means to obstruct an official proceeding. Um, You have to corruptly obstruct the official proceeding. What does it mean for that to be corrupt? And you had 
had a two to one decision by a panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, where the the majority held that he had had corrupt intent and, and came up with a standard that was fairly easy to meet. But you also had a dissenting judge saying that this, you know, this renders the, the corrupt intent standard more or less meaningless. Anytime you're trying to do something illegal, then it's going to be with corrupt intent. It has to have a narrower definition that wouldn't actually have applied here. Um, and so this is a, a, a key issue in Donald Trump's own trial. And this has been sort of looming over there as one of the big potential legal threats to some of the January 6th prosecutions, that maybe this this law about obstructing proceedings is, be, is being uh, applied to a situation that it wasn't really intended for to begin with. And you have a, at least one appellate judge taking that side. Right. So here what the court did, uh, what the majority of the court did was say that there are multiple ways you can prove corrupt intent that you obstructed corruptly. One of them has to do with sort of a mental state, a consciousness of wrongdoing. But they said they didn't have to define that specifically because there was another way that was clearly satisfied here. And that's it's corrupt if the means you use to obstruct are otherwise unlawful. So here what the what the court majority said is that, you know, by going in and, and breaching the perimeter and staying in when he was not supposed to and committing these other crimes, that was otherwise unlawful. And that satisfies the requirement that you corruptly obstruct a proceeding. So it, it doesn't really nail down exactly what the sort of corrupt mental state is as the alternate way of proving that, of the sort of, you know, the bad malign intent, the consciousness of wrongdoing. Here, it's kind of easy because the guy was parading around inside. He did enough stuff to get an 87-month sentence, uh, which is what happens, you know, when you go to trial. And the, the, the judge in dissent is saying that, wait, that's that's way too broad because almost all the time you're going to be able to say there's some other crime that waters down the meeting of corruptly. I don't think that can be right. So that indicates there are at least some judges out there who think this is an issue, but it's a little muddy because the evaluation of the mental state corruptly definition is, is not uh, determinative to this outcome. And I think probably with Trump, the theory is going to be on the mental state and not necessarily only on otherwise unlawful. I'm sure they will try to say it's otherwise unlawful because he was helping to submit false things and that's, you know, otherwise unlawful. But I think they're going to go at multiple ways. And one of the ways is that he has a, a malign intent. He's got, you know, the intent expressed in his line depends. Your problem is you're too honest. So it's likely that there'll be an in-bank rehearing or, or a Supreme Court hearing of this case, do you think, or, or no? The two to one makes it more likely than a three to zero that it will be heard by a larger piece of the court or by the Supreme Court. And for some time, there's been talk that the Supreme Court may cut back on obstruction of a proceeding and make it less vague and, you know, a narrower set of things you can do. But it's not certain. And I, I think here in this particular case, because it doesn't squarely require resolution of the entire statute because there's a separate issue of otherwise unlawful. I'm not sure it's it's the type of case the Supreme Court would take. Let's talk about Alec Baldwin. 
I thought we'd put this case to bed. I mean, Alec Baldwin thought this case had been put to bed. He'd been indicted for involuntary manslaughter in New Mexico related to the, the tragic shooting of the cinematographer on his film production, Rust, uh, where he was holding the gun that went off and, and she was shot and killed with. And there was this question of, did Alec Baldwin pull the trigger? Did he touch the trigger? Um, the theory for the original prosecution was there was no way the gun could go off unless he had touched and applied pressure to the trigger and that therefore he had behaved at least negligently in causing her death. And then there were some issues related to the gun itself and suggestions that actually maybe the gun could have gone off without him touching the trigger at all. And that really undermined their prosecution. They also had several other problems with this prosecution. The case got dropped. Now prosecutors are, are saying they're going to take the case again before a grand jury and try again to indict him. And it's because they have what they say is updated information about the gun, and they say they can show, after all, that he really did have to pull the trigger for this to happen. Right. So this was a case in which one of the issues was the FBI's examination of the gun. Uh, the FBI examined the gun and came to a conclusion, but in the course of testing and examining the gun, they broke it. And this is a very FBI thing to do is like, you know, let's get this key piece of evidence, immerse it in acid and hit it with a hammer a few times. Uh, and so the prosecutor's problem was that you couldn't really retest it because you didn't have the same thing that was tested originally. You couldn't come to a reliable conclusion about it. What they did, though, is retest it and make it less about whether the trigger has to be pulled uh, deliberately and and more a conclusion that you have to put this much force onto it for the gun to go off. Okay. Uh, Wasn't that the same thing? Isn't putting pressure on the trigger and pulling the trigger the same thing? It seems similar, but I think I think they're less kind of arguing you have to deliberately pull the trigger in an effort to pretend to shoot the gun as it is you just have to put this much force on the gun for it to go off. Uh, anyway, it, remember, this is a situation where Alec Baldwin uh, is kind of hoist by his own words because he had at one point talked about how he knows you never pull the trigger on a gun because that's dangerous, even if you think it's loaded with blanks. And he would never do that. And shut up, Alec. This is why you don't say those things, because he just basically admitted that if he did pull the trigger, that would be reckless. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not 100 percent clear to me that the prosecutors are actually thinking we want to go after Alec Baldwin. That sounds weird, but, uh, you know, bear in mind that the grand jury is a tool. It's not always a tool to prosecute. Sometimes it's a tool for cover for not prosecuting. That happens most often in cases with police officers, uh, you know, where, where basically a police officer has shot some unarmed person in the back and the DA makes a big show of handing it to the grand jury, suspecting the grand jury will say, oh, we, we love cops. We don't like people getting sh who are shot in the back. They probably had it coming and, you know, no bail. Um, it's possible <laughs> this is cover. For the DA who thinks that you know, it's a politically controversial case, there's a lot of sentiment to go after Alec Baldwin, but it's possibly a problematical and weak case because of these flaws in the way the gun was tested. Let's just give it to the grand jury and see what they do with it. If they go with it, great. If not, then it's not on us. We can wash our hands of it. So it would not surprise me if that's kind of the sentiment. And then let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, who uh, remains on trial 
the prosecution continues to present its case. The expectation is the prosecution will rest sometime around Thursday of this week. Uh, and they used one of his media interviews against him. I mean, for months, we'd been talking about Sam Bankman-Fried will talk to anyone who will listen to him. Maybe it was in his best interest to be sent off to jail because at least he won't be talking to reporters so much. So they ended up using video of his interview with George Stephanopoulos to underscore a point that the prosecution was making about him in the case. Right. Uh, the prosecution had a uh, witness named Can's son, who is an insider. Uh, he testified about how um, Sam Bankfree was talking to him and trying to come up with rationales or excuses for what had happened, how this could have happened that were not incriminating. And son told him, well, you could make this particular technical excuse about what happened, but it's not supported by the facts. Mm -hmm. uh, at all. The facts aren't there. <laughs> and he, he testifies that Sam Bankman Free says, okay, you know, he understood that. Then the prosecution plays this tape from Good Morning America, and Sam Bankman Free goes and he offers that exact rationale that the jury has just heard that he knows is not supported by facts. So that's just great use of mixed media <laughs> by the prosecution <laughs> and a great way just to show he's a liar and that, you know, he, he's willing to say anything. Come on. I mean, Josh, this vexes me. If, if you're going to incriminate yourself, does it have to be Good Morning America? Does it have to be George Stephanopoulos? Do you prefer the Today Show? I, I prefer, I mean, can you at least go like on, I don't know, the evening news? Can you go on CNN? He should come on Serious Trouble. Well, sure. He should come here and incriminate himself. This, this is like... This is like going on Teletubbies and confessing to a Muppet. I mean, it's just it's fundamentally <laughs> annoying to me. Um, the defense will present its case starting Thursday. There have been some news articles discussing the question of will Sam Bankman-Fried take the stand in his own defense? <laughs> is there any possible way that they're going to put him on the stand? Yes. So bear in mind, it's the client's decision. The, and uh, you can't refuse to put the client on the stand if the client wants to. You can use every tool in your repertoire to try to convince the client not to do it, to point out to the client that it's suicidal. But ultimately, you know, the judge will often say, not in front of the jury, you know, Mr. Bankman-Fried, you know, you have a right to testify. I just want to make sure that you know that you're giving up that right voluntarily, because it's it's very typical in post-conviction attacks for a client to say, oh, I wanted to testify. I could have cleared the whole thing up and my lawyer wouldn't let me. He told me I couldn't. Uh, so the, the judges like to head that off. But I mean, there are things that make people a bad candidate for testifying. Some of those things are being arrogant, being unjustifiably full of yourself, and having a weak grasp on how other people view you. Those are all <laughs> things that Sam Bankman-Fried is. So the only thing that going on the stand has to recommend it is that things are going very badly for him in the trial and how much worse could it really make it? You know, it's kind of the throw a hand grenade strategy. But I, I think most people think he would be a horrifically bad witness. Uh, he would be impeached with all sorts of stuff. 
uh, you would probably not be able to maintain in any significant way an appropriate demeanor or remember what he's talking about or not say incriminating things. So I'm pretty confident his lawyers are telling him not to. I'm not 100% confident he won't just decide, hey, I'm the boy genius here. I decide what I do. Uh, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'll just straighten all this out. I mean, one of these articles, uh, Yahoo Finance article, the former federal prosecutor they quote is Nima Ramani, and she says Bankman-Fried has to put on a defense uh, trying to make a case that he didn't know what was going on or the victims weren't really defrauded isn't going to work without his testimony because the prosecution is so far ahead. So, I mean, is, is it possible not only that he will testify, but that it will be a correct strategic choice to put him on the stand despite all of his shortcomings as a witness because there's really no other good option? I think strategically the reason you put him on the stand if you do is not because you think you're going to sway the whole jury, but you're going to sway one. So the hope is you make sort of an emotional connection with one juror who hangs the jury and, and you live to fight another day. I don't think that it's likely that anyone reasonably anticipate that he is going to come up with like the convincing explanation that puts doubt in the mind of all the jurors. I mean, he's not an unknown quantity, Josh. We've 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 seen him interviewed repeatedly and he does not come off well. There's no indication that he's able to put things convincingly except to dumb, addled crypto buyers. Well, there could be one of those on the jury, first of all, although I think a lot of right. uh, crypto buyers are quite angry with Sam Bankman-Fried for having lost a lot of people's money. But th the, the thing about this, though, is Sam Bankman-Fried does have a history of successfully charming people and convincing people that he was a genius and that he not only that he was a genius, but he was this big philanthropic genius and he had huge, important ideas about saving the world that he was going to support with all of his profits from his crypto business. And some of that charm has has even had residual effects where it's stayed. I mean, Michael Lewis has this new book out about him <laughs> that's gotten a lot of criticism for being sort of soft on Sam Bankman-Fried. Right. I think it's not quite as soft as, as people have the sense that it is, in part because he... But that's partly because Michael Lewis gave this interview with 60 Minutes where he said things like, there's a Sam Bankman-Fried size hole in the world and clearly has this, like, this nostalgia for what was of Sam Bankman-Fried, that people wanted to believe in him. And it, it does demonstrate, I mean, I've been so negative on crypto for so long that I never bought into any of this, but a lot of people really did. And there was, there is an indication that Sam Bankman-Fried can impress certain people under certain circumstances, that what looks ridiculous to me actually has some amount of appeal. And maybe that's true even in, even in the trial setting. Sure. And that, which is why I think it's more reasonable to hope that you sway one juror and right. you make that connection with one juror. But but here, the jury will have heard all the stuff about how the charming things he said were bogus. And th that's a big uphill battle to fight. And, and they're doing it in the cold, hard light of a courtroom and not in these other contexts where people are sort of predisposed to suspend their disbelief about magic beans. I think it's a definitely an uphill battle. Um, I, I would not think it's a realistic strategy that his testimony is going to result in a not guilty verdict, a reasonable doubt in the minds of all the jurors. I do think it's a realistic strategy that it might hang a jury, and that may be what they decide to do. But suppose you succeed at hanging the jury and you get a mistrial. 
I mean, in some cases, you might be hoping that the government decides it's more trouble than it's worth to bring the case again. That's not going to happen here. They will try Sam Bankman-Fried again yes. if there is a hung jury. So it's, you know, what is the, what's the end game if you succeed at, at hanging the jury? The end game is you live to redo it. Uh, you know how the government's evidence comes in. You can uh, redo your cross-examinations based on what you've learned. You can change your trial strategy to different theories you think might be more effective. Maybe you use it to get a better plea offer. Although, again, the plea offer is going to be, you know, most of your life rather than life plus cancer. So it's not appealing. But I mean, being a criminal defense attorney is is looking for the least bad outcome a lot of the time. And that's what they're looking for here. Well, that's a good place to leave it this week on the least bad outcome. Ken, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time.